If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. As, a, as Elizabeth Taylor said to her eighth husband, I won't keep you long. So uh, 2 Samuel 21, you know, with all the uh, poor humor that was put out here tonight, I should not be trying anything. Yeah, I, I shouldn't say that, but I thought those guys were very funny. It just, the reason they got quiet is because it, they caught us off guard, some of the things they were saying. Um, like that last uh, thing about your friends and your nose, and I wasn't ready for that, yeah. So, how many are here tonight? Raise your hand. That's a lot. How many haven't made it yet? All right. A lot of precious memories, and, I, and I, if, I, if I start naming off people that uh, are near and dear to me that we're going to be here a long time, uh, some of my great friends that I met here uh, are dead. And uh, if you live long enough, it'll happen to you as well. So, and on that happy note, let's notice what it says. For those of you that are still alive that have been my friends, thank you. For those of you that are not my friends, you really should be. Uh, anyway, what a great commendation. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Wilkerson, for this wonderful opportunity to be here. Thank the Lord for, uh, I, I have to say, say this, on the day that Pete Cowling started teaching, I did as well, and it was so neat to live in his shadow and just be in awe of the way that God used him and all of my friends here. I think about Brother Hiles and uh, how that he asked me, you know, Barbara was born in, she was born in St. Margaret's, reared here. And uh, so Brother Hiles asked me in, in the fall of that year, and I mentioned this in the morning service, he said, are you interested in a certain girl here? And I said, well, there is one. He said, who is it? And I named, it was Barbara Wright. And he said, who? And you know how he could look at you. <laughs> Good night. But uh, do you remember when that was illegal? Remember, Mark, that was illegal. You couldn't do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, and, uh, but, okay, that's enough. He said, uh, she's smart, she's pretty, her family's a salt of the earth. She plays the piano. You don't have a chance with her. But anyway, but he married us, so there are a lot of great memories here. Mark Rasmussen, what a character, uh, and, and, I, and I say that nicely. I wish he would learn how to read, but he's a great man. <laughs> fastest reader I know, the fastest reader in the West. All right. West. Yeah, you have, anyway, but anyway, notice what it says in 2 Samuel 21, verse number 15. More with the Philistines that yet war again with Israel. Hey, by the way, Ray Young, I want to say hi to you. I've been thinking about this half the day. I was 21 years old. He was 16, 17 when I met him in Shreveport, Louisiana. And look at him, he's all grown up now. But anyway, <laughs> 2 Samuel 21, verse number 15. Moreover, the Philistines that yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. And Ishbibonob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. Let's remain standing, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right on with the message. You may be seated. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful evening, the celebratory evening 
reminiscing and thinking about uh, things that have been done in the past and the things that shall be done, God willing, in the future. We thank you for the opportunity to be here at our alma mater, the place where, Lord, you did so much for me personally and for all of us collectively. We thank you for these 38,000 students that have come through this school. We thank you for the staff and the faculty. We thank you for our founders. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have moved through all the years, through all the tears, through all the labor, through all the sorrow, through all the sunshine. You've been good, Lord, at every moment and in every move. You're sovereign and holy, and we do adore you as the choir was singing a while ago. Give us that Holy Spirit unction, the function in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. David was in his late 50s and early 60s when these uh, events took place. <clears throat> There's a phrase that, a, that is used here that is not used of David, definitely not back in the 17th chapter of 1 first, of first, of first Samuel. He um, waxed faint, the Bible said. He learned the hard way when kings go out to war that he's to go out with them. But it appears that if we can, you know, the biographies of the Bible are very concise, very compact. So with God's permission, I like to just use your imagination with me to think about this. So it appears that um, David needed to go in for some rest. The Israelis are on the winning side. I can see him meeting with his lieutenants and saying, finish up here, then come to the palace and we'll talk about strategy and tactics for the next battle with these uncircumcised Philistines. Your majesty, can we send an entourage? I don't need any bodyguards, I'm fine. The heat's over here, boys. I got Clyde Park two hills away. That's his Campbell, okay. And I'm good. And we'll meet you there tonight. So David goes down one hill, can't wait to get his hand on that bag filled with that Bethlehem spring water tied to Clyde's side, and he comes up to the top of the hill. He sees that semi-oasis where Clyde's all parked, and he goes over there, and I can see him as he grabs hold of that animal skin. He begins to squirt that water in his mouth. You ever been so thirsty that you start drinking, and it comes down both sides of your mouth? I would imagine that was happening. Enter Ishbibanab. I mean, even the name sounds a little awesome, doesn't it? Ishbibanab. I mean, it sounds like some of our professional ball players. Akil O'Neill, Karim Abdul-Jabbar, you know, and playing center for the Philistia. Ishbib, Ishbibanab, Banab, you know, Ishbibanab. Kind of an awesome name. If he's anything like his daddy, he's standing right at 10 feet tall. Oh, yes. And Ishbibanab, which was of the sons of the giant. When the boys grew up in Israel, they grew up wanting to be like David, the giant killer. In Philistia, they grew up wanting to kill the giant killer, especially if you were the progeny of the man that was felled by a young man named David, the shepherd king. That being Ishbibanab. Can you imagine what that must have been like? David found Clyde, got a hold of that water, squirting in his mouth. He hears the voice behind him. David! 
Now remember, the Bible said that he has this sword that has been made for the specific purpose of field dressing David the king. A new sword. David's name's on it. David! He knows a couple things. Number one, he's not friendly. He's got an attitude. Number two, he's not part of our kingdom. No respect there. David turns around and there he stands with that sword glistening in the midday sun. Hello, my name is Ishbibanab. You killed my father, prepare to die. <laughs> hey, don't laugh, there's a six finger dude in here too. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the end of the chapter, but you know. And David says, yo, you talking to me? No, David is not feeling real brave. There's trouble for the home team. There's no adrenaline rush here. There's no supernatural power from God putting a, you know, bionic speed behind his weaponry. The Bible says he's waxing faint. His knees are weak. As David stands under the shadow of that sword, what comes to my mind is August 19th, 1990. George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States, said to Saddam Hussein, if you invade Kuwait, we'd consider it an act of war. Furthermore, we consider it an act of war against the United States of America. He invaded Kuwait, Desert Storm was on. And uh, the president was getting all kind of criticism from every nook and corner, journal and newspaper, TV broadcast, and so on. They were using terms like you've started World War III. Uh, they were even using apocalyptic biblical words, and they were unbelievers. You've started the Battle of Armageddon. Every return, there was a discouraging word until 11 o'clock p.m. in the Oval Office. He gets a phone call, and it went like this. Good evening, Mr. President. This is Margaret Thatcher. And I've called to tell you, sir, I have at your disposal the Royal Army, so I have at your disposal. The Royal Force, I have at your disposal. The Royal Navy, I have at your disposal. The RAF, yeah, yeah. I don't know if she said here, here, but anyway. And now here's what, verbatim, she then says, and I've just called to tell you, sir, oh, after she said, I have at your disposal 7,500 Delta trained Marines. And I, who are, but anyway, and I've just called to tell you, sir, verbatim, and I've just called to tell you, sir, that this is no time to go wobbly. What an undistinguished word for such a distinguished lady. Wobbly. Everybody say wobbly with me. And I say it like the Brits do. Wobbly. Look at your neighbor and look at him or her and say wobbly. Hell yes. This is no time, no, no, to go wobbly. You know, I was interested. What exactly did she mean? So I looked it up. Not in the Merriam-Webster, but in OED, in the OED, in the Oxford English Dictionary. I looked it up. Wobbly. To vacillate from side to side. To bobble like jelly. Now, that's just part of a very long definition. If I could Americanize it, to weave from side to side, to bobble like jello. This is no time to go wobbly. That's what I'd like to speak to you on tonight. This is no time to go wobbly. And there's a lot of wobbling in independent Baptist fundamentalism. A lot of wobbling. 
This is no time to go wobbly because spiritual war is real. You know, uh, just as real as the war between Israel and Philistia, spiritual war is real, as real as the war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, spiritual war is real. It's very real. You know, you're, you're sitting here and you're wondering, well, you know, that, that may be for some of the superstars, but not for me. No, no, no. As soon as you got saved, you entered into warfare. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we were singing it tonight, weren't we? The Lord's army. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, having done all to stand. Loins good about with the truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith to quench every fire dart, fire dart of the devil, uh, the helmet of salvation to bring the captivity, every thought to the beatings of Christ. We are in spiritual warfare. Amen. I was telling someone today, you know, when I was younger, I had a tendency to think when I see, uh, when I saw back when I was younger, a Christian that hit the skids morally and so on, my first knee-jerk response was, they never wore real. They were fakes all along. No, 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 no fruit because there's no root, you know. But as I grew older, I found that there were indeed dedicated servants of God serving the Lord, and they're just part of the casualties. The more dedicated you are, the bigger the bullseye the devil puts on you. You know, I think that we forget that almost equal in the opposite direction to the love of God in the good direction is the hate of the devil for you and all that you stand for. He just hates you. If he can't get you, he'll go for your spouse. If he can't get your spouse, he'll go for your kids. He's looking for the weakest link. He's looking for wherever he can get a foothold. We're in spiritual war. You ever been trying to win somebody but the Lord? And right at the last moment, just before they pray, phone rings, dog barks, baby cries. What a coincidence. We have a group of men in our church that have been praying faithfully in our day for 36 years. And in our church, it's a very blessed thing. If you want to be in and the in crowd, you need to be a prayer warrior. When a young man begins to pray the price, there's always something like this I hear from him. Brother Hope, I can't believe it. For the first time in my life, I'm breaking through in my prayer life. For the first time in my life, God is real to me. But just as I was beginning to break through in my prayer life, at the very moment in my prayer, the most horrible thought came to my mind out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's a fiery dart. Well aimed. Baxter said, the devil fears nothing from prayerless labor. He fears nothing from prayerless toil. He fears nothing from prayerless preaching. But when the weakest saint is upon his or her knees, all hell trembles. For prayer is the preacher's power, and prayer is the penitent's plea, and prayer is the orphan's refuge, and a preacher that's not a praying preacher is a playing preacher. There's no time to go wobbly. So what has happened, in, 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 you know, as you grow in grace, with every new level you come up to, new levels, new devils, new levels, new devils, new levels, new devils. If you remember when Daniel was in his 80s, not back when he was in the lion's den, when he was in his 80s, in his 80s, in chapter 10 of uh, Daniel, he's praying now for, 30, for 21 days, three weeks, and then at the end of three weeks, the angel of the Lord comes to him and said, I begin to come for your words. I wonder how many of our prayers summon the angels of heaven. But then he said, we hit some interference. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He hit the prince of Persia. 
In the same way that we have a ranking system like uh, in, in our armed forces, you know, we have privates, corporals, sergeants, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, majors, uh, lieutenant colonels, full bird colonels, uh, brigadier generals, uh, major generals, lieutenant generals, generals of the army. Um, as you grow in grace, powers of darkness get stronger. And that's why a mature Christian has a very dangerous place if he comes to the place where he coasts. Because it's not the little demonic powers that's after you, it's the big boys that are after you. So when you let your guard down, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Spiritual war is real. This is no time to go wobbly because the devil never gives up. It says there in 2 Samuel 21 in verse number 18, and it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Verse 19, and there was again a battle in Gob. Verse number 20, and there was yet a battle in Gath. He never gives up. Do you think the devil is in hell saying, John Wilkerson is far too dedicated. We've lost too many battles against John Wilkerson. Gentlemen, don't, well, I don't think the devil calls his demons gentlemen, but powers of darkness, you know, don't fight with him anymore. We keep losing. He never gives up. He's more tenacious than the Cubs. Or the Red Sox. He cheats like the Astros. I don't give up on my friends, but anyway, pray for Al Tuvi. But anyway, so what happens is that he is infuriated. He never, he just never, he's not going to give up on John Wilkerson. Think about this. In the future, he's going to be bound for a thousand years. As soon as he gets loose, he gets up an army to fight Jesus. Even hell is not remedial for the devil. He just never gives up. As a matter of fact, he tempted Jesus. He's, he never looks at you as too tough for him. He lives in denial. That's what Armageddon is all about. He thinks he can win. This is no time to go wobbly because the devil never gives up. This is no time to go wobbly. Some of you have heard me take this text before, but let me add a couple of things. This is no time to go wobbly because soul winning still does work. Amen. He that winneth souls is wise. Amen. Somebody said, you Baptists, you believe in backsliding. Not only do we believe in it, we practice it effectively from time to time. I remember one time, you know, you know, I had a bus route like a lot of us did, and we were spending up to six hours visiting every, Tim McCurdy, you were with me. Sometimes we'd be out there for 10 hours, knocking doors. And then when I got into evangelism, and then even later on in the pastorate, you know, I wasn't spending as many hours out there. And I remember talking to Brother Hiles about this. Brother Hiles, I feel bad that my personal soul winning is not as good as it used to be. He said, well, Johnny, you're preaching every night. Every time you get in the pulpit, you're, you're soul winning. I thought, oh, that is so good. And, and, and I was in prayer shortly afterward and said, that is so good, Lord. And the Lord said, well, I'm not impressed because you've not been taking advantage of every opportunity I've been giving you. What? Boy, and the Lord spoke to my heart that I do need to hone up and sharpen up my personal soul winning. For he that winneth souls is wise. The antithesis is true, isn't it? If you don't win your souls, you're not very wise, are you? 
So I remember shortly afterwards, I was having prayer time. Brother Wilkerson, I know this has happened to you. You ever been in prayer time and a, and a song comes to your mind? And, you, and, and it creates an earworm? Well, that day, this song came into my mind that we sing in our youth. Lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to say. And that song was in my mind, lead me to some soul today. And I had a long things to do list. And I remember I made my first hospital call. It was on a Wednesday. And I was uh, now taking a shortcut on a street called Red Oak behind one of the main streets called FM 9060. And um, I was heading to the next hospital. And I just really been spending time with the Lord on this matter of soul winning. And the Lord spoke to my heart, take advantage of the opportunities I give you. That's your big problem. And I remember at a distance there in, in the um, bus stop, I saw the silhouette of a young man sitting there. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, witness to him. And I said, Lord, have you seen my things to do list? God said, witness to him. But Lord, there's other, we're living in Houston. This is not Chicago area. There's a lot more Christians here, you know. Oh, that didn't go over well. But, um, and the Lord said, witness to him. Besides, Lord, this is a busy time of the day. There's no place to park. And as soon as I said that, there was a parking space right behind the bus stop. Never argue with the Lord. He always wins. So I pulled over. Remember when we were in college and we were taught, carry the New Testament with you and then be tactful, be polite. And at the given moment, pull it out like a derringer, boom, and shoot him with the gospel gun. I thought, well, I'm not in the mood to be tactful. I'm just doing this to obey Jesus. You know, sometimes we witness, not because we always love the lost people the way you should, but we love him with all of our heart. Love of the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, all thy, and, our, and the neighbor as thyself. And who is my neighbor? There he was, sitting in the bus stop. So I got out of the car real quickly, and I, I did not get my New Testament. I got the C.I. Schofield Bible, the old one, amen. And I came around to the guy in the bus stop, and I said, are you a Christian? And he turned his head toward me, and then I pointed it like an Uzi. In other words, if you died right now, do you know for sure you go to heaven? <laughs> he looked at me, he had this pronounced accent, he said, no, I don't. I said, well, if I could show you in the Bible how you could be a Christian, would you be interested? I would, sir. I felt like he said, did you hear what I say? And so I just began to give him the gospel, and I was flying through, to be honest with you. You know, the Bible says that right here, as it is written, there's none, none righteous, none are one. Then right here it says, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Wherefore is by one man sin in the world, and death by sin is the death passed, but all wine for the all of sin. Romans 6, 23, for the way of sin is death. Romans 5, 8, but God committed this love toward us. Why were you? And I was moving almost that fast. And the bus pulls up. And it lowers. The doors open. And I said, look it, here's a gospel track. My daddy wrote it. Read it. It's basically the same thing I would have told you. Read it. And he put one hand underneath my hand in the track, another hand on top of my hand in track, and he said, oh, no, sir. Please, tell me more. I felt like I was in a Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> no, you can't have more. <laughs> So he's holding my hand on the track. <laughs> I looked at the bus driver. And so he looked, and he drove away. And I thought, if this young man wants to hear the gospel that bad, I won't give it to him. I threw my coat off, opened up my Bible, and now I'm preaching. 
We're going through what the religions of the world believe. And I said, Buddhism isn't it. You can meditate in your navel fuzz from here till kingdom come, but you're not going nirvana and you're not getting any bad stuff off of you. And Muhammad was a weirdo and a pervert and he was a murderer. And man, I'm going to town. And then I lifted up Jesus and preached the cross. We went to Calvary, went to the tomb. We saw the tomb empty. He rose again. Now I'm sweating. And I said, out of breath, Right now, would you like to right here and right now pray and ask the Lord to forgive you and save you? He said, I would, sir. I said, let's do it. So I got down on my knees and I prayed, prayed him another gospel of the prayer. You know. Then he prayed, most beautiful prayer. And I remember he looked at me with glistening dark eyes. He said, this is brilliant. And he said, you know, I can't believe you stopped today. Fellow saying, I can't believe I stopped either, you know. Here's what he said. I was born in London, England, reared as a Muslim. That's all I've ever known. I was sitting here on the bus stop this morning. I just lifted my head to the heavens, and I said, Allah, I don't believe in you anymore, and you scared me, and you never answered one of my prayers. But if there's a God anywhere in the universe, reveal yourself to me if you really exist Reveal yourself to me right now. And he said, then you came around the corner. And I felt like saying, bye, George, you've got it. What a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. Spiritual war is real. And I know that we get discouraged. I, you know, in these recent days, I thought I would get used to being, you know, a little bit hurt when people slam the door in my face. I was so winning last week, and, and I was knocking on the door, and nobody answered. Now they got these talking uh, doorbells, and, 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 this, and, and sometimes they get insulting and curse at you. <laughs> and I remember, you know, rang the doorbell, and, and, and I heard a voice, just go away, and I pulled out my track, and, and the voice said, and don't put your Bible track in our door. So I took the doorbell and I crushed it with my hand. No, I didn't either. I'm just, <laughs> I just wanted to see if you're still listening. The hour's late. But it still bothers me. It still bothers me. This is no time to go wobbly because there's going to be those people like the young man I just mentioned that are waiting for the gospel. And if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked man from his wicked ways, Ezekiel said, that wicked man shall die, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Amen. Paul said, I'm pure from the blood of all men. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I greet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, and he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing, right? That's what the Bible says. This is no time to go wobbly because soul winning still works. This is no time to go wobbly because prayer still changes things. Prayer still changes things. I, about, I think about the neighbors that I pray for in our community. Carl and Courtney next door, uh, and the couple behind us, and, and Cody and, uh, and, and Charlie to the right of me, and Daryl and Chris to the, uh, to, in front of me, to the right of me. 
And, and we got a phone call just um, on uh, um, Wednesday morning. I got a text. My heart is burdened. I think I need to get baptized. It was Charlie across the street. And so I said, at 5 o'clock tonight, meet me at my mother-in-law's place right next door to us. Barbara was playing the piano, and Charlie came in, and we showed her the Bible how to get saved, and she got saved. Amen. You know, when I presented the gospel to them first, she gave me the assurance she was saved. Everything was okay, but you don't know. Keep on praying the price. You don't know when they're going to finally respond because prayer changes things. Prayer changes people. You might say, but I'm just not like Elijah. I'm not like Moses. And therein is where you're wrong. If you have your Bibles, remember what it said in James chapter 5. Now, I know that we know this by heart, but it says right here, confess your faults, verse 16, one to another, and pray for one another. You may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, yes, but that's Elijah. He's in a different category than I am. That's not what the Bible says. It says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months that he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth our fruit. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but he was a man of like passions. He took out over 400 prophets, in his prayer, he spoke to God one time and the fire fell, but one woman named Jezebel threatened him and he ran like a baby, got another juniper tree and lived with a death wish for a moment of time. A man of like passions. If you have your Bibles, look at Exodus chapter, 20, uh, Exodus chapter 32. Remember Moses? Man of like passions. The Bible says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And yet this man caved into wrath when God said, hit the rock once and then later speak to the rock. And in his anger against the Israelis, he hit the rock and it cost him the promised land. He was a man of like passions. But he developed the heart of God for his people. Now when God says something, no matter how drastic, he doesn't mince with words, and he says what he means, and God Almighty means what he says. Remember Ezekiel 22 and 30? I sought for a man among them to make up the hedge, to stand in the gap before me. Now, I've heard that used for mission conferences. We need some missionaries to get in the gap. Christian education, homeschool mothers, get in the gap. We need young men to surrender to preach. I had one young lady, older lady rather, say, isn't it a shame that God isn't calling more young men to preach? I said, ma'am, he's still calling them. They're not just not surrendering. We need some young preachers. So Bible conferences, surrender God's call in your life. But textually, here's what it says. Soft for a man among them to make up the hedge, to stand the gap. It was a world of agriculture over there, Brother John. They were shepherds. They were farmers. They were ranchers. Son, stand in the gap. The hedge is broken down. The, the fence is down. If you don't stand there while we go get the materials, predators can get in. If you don't stand there, the sheep will get out. Get in the gap. And God made the parallel mark like this. He says, I need a man because there's a hole in the wall. I need a man. I need somebody to pray the price for the land. He says, before me. So it is the secret place. 
for the lamb, Ezekiel 22, 30, that I might not destroy it. God says, I'm about to wipe out the people. Talk me out of it. That's a conundrum, isn't it? It's in a conundrum. He's going to take out Sodom and the Gomorrah, and then Abraham starts negotiating for 50. Now, he got them all the way down to 10. I won't destroy for 10. So that's not an isolated event for God looking for somebody to get in the gap. Here we see Moses has developed the heart for God. God has said to him in no uncertain terms, I'm going to wipe them out, the entire Israeli people, and I'm going to let you be my next Abraham, right? I'm going to let you start all over. No, no, no. Moses now has the heart of God. And it says in verse number 30, chapter 32 of Exodus, and it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, ye have sinned a great sin, and, and now I go up unto the Lord peradventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, dash. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Some of the new versions take out the dash, but you're not supposed to do that. That dash is supposed to be there. You see, Moses is so caught up in prayer, he's lost adjectives, he's lost adverbs, he's lost a way to define what he means. He just knows that he doesn't want God to kill them, forgive them. And if not, and God says to Gabriel, put a dash there. What's that mean? Just put a dash there. Ian Bounds said it best. Better to have prayer without words than words without prayer. Yeah. So he prayed. You want to see how powerful one dash of prayer is? By one man, Psalm 106. This is not made up. This is one of those places. You know, one time um, Dr. Harold Seitler said to a group of preachers, if the Bible had never said this, I wouldn't have believed it. He was referring to that place in Peter. Remember when he says, add to your faith virtue, the virtue knowledge, knowledge patience, patience godliness, godliness brotherly kindness. If these things be in you to abound, you'll be fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Dr. Seidler said the Bible never said that. I wouldn't believe that, that a person can get so far away from God they forget they were ever even purged. Can I say parenthetically, keep praying for your prodigal. If they really meant business with the Lord Jesus, God meant business with them. And Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You know what that means in the Greek language? No way, Jose. When we're saved, we're saved forever. So there's a lot of doubt that will come in your mind. The devil will tell you, don't pray for that kid. They're reprobated. They've sinned the sin and the death. Yeah, but they're not dead, right? So as long as they're praying. Can I do my Elvis Presley impersonation? Here we go. Okay, when you're dead, you're dead. But if you're alive, that means God's not through with you. Amen. Right? Amen. If your kid's still alive, yeah, but they're on drugs. Yeah, but they're doing this. They're still alive. God's not through. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. God is very sovereign. There is no power greater than God's power. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. I like this. I like this, John. Or, or doctor. I, or think. 
In other words, he's, better to, he's able to answer our prayer better than our imagination can comprehend it. Ooh, glory to God. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Jeremiah 33, 3. I know the thoughts I think towards you, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. New versions say, a future with a hope. No, no, better than that. An expected end. You can expect God to keep his word. You can expect God to answer prayer. Thank you. This is no time to go wobbly because God still answers prayer. And prayer changes things. How? How much change? Psalm 106. Some, oh, it would be good if I would get there too, okay? Let me get there, okay? Psalm 106. Okay, I'm a little bit nervous as a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Psalm 106, verse 23. Therefore he, that's God, said he would destroy them had not Moses is chosen, here it is, stood before him in the breach. Moses was a gaptist. How's that? He was a gaptist. He stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he destroy them. Did I read into that something that's not there? God was going to take out 4,000 people. But he said, I didn't do it because one man prayed the price and he wasn't feeling very articulate. He got to the point where he didn't know what else to say, but he just kept praying silently in his heart, saying, God formed the word. The Bible says in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's praying within us. Think about that. When we start praying, the Holy Ghost is communicating with the Father and Son. Hallelujah. This is no time to go wobbly because God still answers prayer. This is no time to go wobbly because it's time for you that are here, especially you younger ones, to step up. I love this story. It says in verse number 17, after it said, he, that's Ishbibanab, being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David, but Abishai, the son of Zewur, suckered him. That means he ran to the rescue and smote the Philistine and killed him. Wow. Bada bing, bada boom. Done. Again, if we can use imagination, it appears that Ishbi, Benob, was walking and stalking, looking for an opportunity to take out the man that killed his father. So David didn't need any bodyguards, but he's got this young nephew that he squired, that he taught, that became one of his mighty men, that kind of trailed behind his uncle. So Ishbibanab, when he's threatening David, and he's ready now to go to work on David, I can imagine there's a voice behind him, Ishbibanab! And there stands Abishai drawn sword. I read in a secular history that he was the greatest swordsman in Israel. I don't know how people find that out. But anyway, it's supposed to be the greatest swordsman in Israel. Ishbibanab says, Abishai, I know who you are. My fight's not with you. Back off. My fight's with him. And Abishai says, you mean Uncle David? Uncle David? And as David looks at Abishai, maybe David's mind goes back to when Abishai is a youngster and his sister visiting him. And he hears a little voice down the hallway. I'm guard! I'm the giant killer. I'm David the king. <laughs> David says, hey, sis, can I go fellowship with Abishai? Go ahead, Dave. Hey, Abishai, yeah, Uncle David. 
Would you like me to show you how to use that sword? Oh, would you, Uncle David? Yeah. And I can see David grabbing a make-believe sword. And he says, and when we're through, I'll show you the biggest sword you've ever seen in your life. On guard, Abishai. On guard, your majesty. I imagine David's mind is going back to that youngster, now full-grown, broad-shouldered, strapling young man, two inches taller than Uncle David. Command me, your majesty. What does David say? Oh, I got this. No, he doesn't have this. He's waxed faint. There's no strength. I can imagine he says to Abishai, Get him, boy! And now Ishbibanov discovers that dynamite comes in small packages. And the fight is on. And then I can imagine a final blow comes, but just before it does, he says, Uncle David, remember this move? And just like his uncle a few years earlier, he too is getting ahead in life. This is no time to go wobbly because Abishai and Abishayat, it's time for you to step up. The Bible says in Acts 13, David served his own generation by the will of God. God may have plans to take me out early, but if he tarries a little while and I live a normal life expectancy... If I'm running this race, I've come to my last turn. And Brother John, I always thought about when I was youngster that I'm running the race and I'm breaking the tape in heaven. It's like there was a song when I was a young youngster that was, became popular when, when they were kind of Jesus freak kind of around. And the song said, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. What a ridiculous song. The body of Christ is so much bigger than just you and Jesus. What I see now more than ever, Brother Owens, what I see now more than ever, Brother Judah, what I see now more than ever, Brother John, what I see now more than ever, Mark and Pastor Wilkinson, what I see now more than ever, Brother Roy Moffat, is that uh, we are running this race, and it's a relay. It's a relay. And now that I've come to this bend, I don't see tape. What I see is you, young man, you, young lady, waiting to receive the goods that were given to me. I got the baton. And I am running. And now I'm sprinting. This is no time to go wobbly. It's time for you to take the sword of the Spirit. It's time for you to be not drunk with wine when it's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It's time for you to step up. Charles Plum, arguably the most outstanding, world, uh, the most outstanding uh, ace during the Vietnam conflict. He took out 75. Successful sortie missions on the 76-1, he was shot down, stationed on the USS Kitty Hawk in Southeast Asia. His plane was shot, his seat ejected, his parachute opened perfectly, he came to earth, perfect landing, destroyed jet, but he survived. But he was captured by the Viet Cong and placed in the infamous Hanoi Hilton for six years. Three of those six years, he was in a cubicle, six feet long, two and a half to three feet tall. He could not even stand up straight for three of those six years. Finally, when he was released, he began to give testimonies around the country. The power of Christ carried him through those days. It was now 15 years since he had been shot down, and he was in a distant city giving a testimony, and he and his wife were out at lunch, and uh, Kathy, his wife, noticed that he was staring over there. She said, Charlie, what's wrong? He said, well, this guy keeps looking at me. Well, maybe he knows you. Let's go ahead and eat, Charlie. And he went back and 
Then she looked up, and he was looking over there. What's wrong? Well, he keeps looking at me. Well, Charlie, we can get finished here, and we'll leave here if it's bothering you. They went back to eating and talking a little bit, but then Charlie looked over there, nervous a little bit, and now that guy was standing right next to the table, staring right down at Charles Plum, very straight and very tall. And the guy barked, Plum, right? He said, yeah, that's me, Charles Plum. USS Kitty Hawk, right? I was on the USS Kitty Hawk. 75 successful missions, shot down on the 76th one, right? Yeah. And he gave him the time that it was shot down, right? He said, right. And the guy smiled real big and saluted. And then he said, I packed your chute, sir. And then he smiled even bigger and said, I guess it worked. Charles Plum stood up and embraced him. He said, every night for 15 years, I've gone to bed thanking God for the man that packed my chute. I'm glad to meet you. They exchanged numbers and addresses. That night, Kathy went to sleep. Charlie kept thinking. I don't even remember him. Maybe, maybe I would just carelessly salute him back when he saluted me, and I'd go to the officer's quarters to spend the night, and he was in the bottom part of that hot, sweaty old ship doing that insignificant thing of folding one insignificant fold after the other. That is until the night he folded my chute. It wasn't anything but insignificant. And he said, and God spoke to my heart and said, hey, Charlie, remember who packed your chute? And I thought about my mother who pointed me to Christ. And I got away from the Lord, and there was a Christian coach that pointed me back to the will of God. And then God spoke to my heart and said, hey, Charlie, whose chute are you packing? When I came across that true piece of history, I thought about it in my own life, my mother. Dad had a doctor's degree in Bible languages. Mother never went past the fifth grade because of the depression. When we went to Walmart, she wrote the check out to Walmart's KS ending. That's where she got her tie and all. My sweet mother butchered the king's language. Dad taught me theology, but mama taught me neology. I've seen mother go 21 days at a time without putting a bit of solid food in her mouth, fasting and praying for my brother. Hey, my brother says a Southern Baptist pastor in Oklahoma. I'm an independent Baptist preacher in Texas. I guess mother prayed more for me. I don't know. But she packed our chute, boy, I'm telling you, prayed the price. I think about my father, how many times he was done wrong, but he never got bitter, never got bitter, stayed sweet, never realizing that his sweet spirit was helping to set me up for a life of dedication. Remember mother telling me, Johnny, if you look at men, they'll always lay down. You got to look at Jesus. He'll never lay you down. And then I married a godly girl who never once. Half of our marriage, it seems like, I've been out preaching somewhere, rearing our four kids by herself. Never once has she ever said, oh, I wish you wouldn't leave. You're gone so much. Why are you going? Oh, no, I've got a phone call, and I'll get an invitation. Well, I don't know if I should go now. Johnny, if God said to go, go. And I think about Barbara and the kids praying for me. And then when I came home, she would treat me like a conqueror. Daddy's home, kids. Daddy's home. Faithful to me. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust her. Who, as I'm preaching now, prayed the price. This is no time to go wobbly. The grandest thing on heaven and earth, it has been said, is a long obedience in the same direction. 
grandest thing in heaven and earth is a long obedience in the same direction. You want to know the weird thing about that quote that I just gave you? That was Frederick Nietzsche, who was reared up in a Bible-believing atmosphere, but he turned against it, and he comes to the end of his life, which is a very sad ending, and he looks back and he remembers the Christians who stayed the course, and he said this most remarkable statement, the grandest thing in heaven and earth is a long obedience in the same direction. I've stood over the graves and the caskets of great Christians, and that quote has often come to my mind. Christianity lives well and dies even better. As Ecclesiastes says, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. When we don't wobble and we stay dedicated to Jesus, the long distance, dedication in the same direction, putting your hand to the plowshare and not turning back, keeping on, keeping on, just going on. And friend, keep on because this is no time to go wobbly.